like your gospel. And so in this time, help us to understand what it's like to live with different motives, different loves. And I pray you'd, you would fill me, Lord, with your spirit that I could rightly speak what you would have for every one of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. It really is true that we are a collection of prodigals. Uh, we are a collection of people who have been brought in from a far country, and I'm referencing Luke 15, where uh, the prodigal son uh, took uh, all that the father was, gave him and uh, committed it to, to a life of debauchery, really. And, uh, and in that story, we have what a beautiful picture of the gospel and um, how our hearts are changed uh, because of the father's love. I really want you to think about that and dwell on that as we look at Acts chapter 6 here. Uh, the passage that was read is a passage where the, um, the apostles are really overwhelmed. Uh, scholars tell us that there may have been somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 Christians in Jerusalem at this time, and there's only 12 apostles. So they had, at least according to Acts 5, been the ones who were organizing the collection, uh, the benevolence collection, the monies used to distribute to the poor. The apostles had been uh, overseeing that, administrating that. And with this growing number of disciples, they then come up with this uh, idea that really is a replacement of what the priests in the Old Testament would do, and that is the alms would be given to a priest, and the priest would administrate the giving of that to, to the poor. That priestly function now is taken over by what will develop to be the office of deacon. So we have, in our passage this morning, we have the description of how the apostles handled this, uh, this situation. And what was going on was there was a group of people who were Jews, uh, but they had been uh, raised in areas that were different or away from Jerusalem. They are called Hellenists. And uh, some of you may remember your history that a Hellenist is someone who is considered Greek. Well, these are these are Jewish people, but they have been raised in a Hellenist culture. So they had, uh, the, what happened was around the 8th century BC, um, there was a, a dispersion of, of Israel. The Assyrians came in and, uh, and took over and... Uh, took out the, the northern tribe that we call Israel. And it was a, a time in Israel's history when the north was called Israel and the south was called Judah. That's where Jerusalem is. So the northern kingdom was taken out by this massive kingdom called Assyria. And those Jews in that area dispersed and they went to all kinds of regions. And so as you study history, you can actually find Jews in southern Russia. You can find them in Iran. You can find them around the, the Middle Eastern world 
and, and beyond that, North Africa and beyond that. So this has been called the diaspora. So these are Jews who are living in Greek culture or Greek-influenced areas. Greek may be their primary language, and Hebrew is their secondary language. So these folks would do pilgrimages to Jerusalem on occasion because Jerusalem was, was the holy city and the place to go to worship. And so what happened is, as people got older, and this in particular with widows, they wanted to die in the holy city. So this is this unusual situation where you have people who are born and raised in Jerusalem, and you have people who are actually not from that area now living in the area. And these are elderly women who are widows. And they are believers in Jesus. And what's happened is somewhere in the distribution of the food, and by the way, this is uh, pre-refrigerators, so food would come in, uh, be purchased by the church, donations come in, and then you'd have this organization of food, food baskets, bread, and then you'd have the distribution of this, right? So just think thousands and thousands of people are relying on this. Well, that would be, a, that would be someone who has a master's degree in strategic planning. You'd have a, this would be, this would be, uh, be a bit of a challenge. So... Um, what happens somewhere, we don't know why or how, but there is a complaint that the Hellenists are not receiving their due portion or they're receiving it late in the day. We're not sure how, but there's something, there's a way that these women, these widows, are being neglected. So the apostles come along and they lay out criteria for seven individuals that the congregation will choose. Now, when you have someone who's overseeing money, it's a good idea that the people have decided who that person is. Okay, so the apostles say, you think about this and choose seven among you, and by the way, they are all Hellenists themselves. You choose seven among you to oversee this ministry. Okay? And so what's interesting here is that there is a um, there is a criteria for them to choose these individuals. And the criteria is they must be, and this is verse 3, men of good repute, that is a good reputation, not only in the church, but outside, full of the spirit and wisdom. That's the first three characteristics. Now, when we read uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, we have other uh, qualifications of a person that we would call a deacon. But this gets them started. That's plenty. Good reputation full of the spirit and wisdom. Now, then they think it over, and seven names are uh, 
proposed. And by the way, this is a very unique thing in the Bible, that when you have your name in the Bible, just imagine your, your name. It's a good story, too. Uh, your name is in the Bible. I mean, that's, that's a big, big moment. That tells us that much more is going on here than just fixing a, a sort of a duty in the church. So they are, they are given a place of service in the church. Now, my question throughout this series is this. There are, there's facts in the book of, facts in the book of Acts. Um, there's a narrative. There's a history. There's events. Um, it's intriguing. It's interesting, right? And so I am actually not that interested in the facts. Because I don't think this truth 2,000 years ago that they chose seven men to help distribute food, I don't think that's going to change your life. Do you think it's going to change? I want to talk to you if you think it's going to change your life. That's fascinating to me. See, I don't think any of you woke up this morning and said, I, I, I just hope Pastor Todd preaches on what it means to be a deacon. Did any of you? Any of you? I want to talk to you. So my point here is that What's happening in the heart of these men that they would be chosen and seen as servants? I mean, what's going on in them? That intrigues me. As in Acts 5 last week, it intrigues me that they were flogged, beaten by the Sanhedrin, and they walked away and they considered it okay. It it didn't destroy them. They didn't wallow in self-pity. They considered it to be an honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, that intrigues me. That's like, that is like, okay, who are these guys? We've been following the idea that they were the the disciples in the Gospels are largely self-centered individuals as they follow Jesus. The miracles really didn't change their hearts. The teaching of Jesus was fascinating. They didn't seem to understand a lot of it. And they were not, even in proximity to Jesus, and if you have a differing opinion on this, I would love to hear you on this, but I don't think they were fundamentally changed at the heart level. That's just my working theory here. And we can point out behavior, and they were very self-protective. But something's going on. They're trained for 40 days. Jesus is risen, and he trains them for 40 days. Those are remarkable days. I believe that they began to understand. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens the eyes of those disciples to understand and to see and perceive him. Okay, so I'm after, in this series, what is it that's going on in the heart of these disciples And now we're looking at the deacon and saying, what's going on with these guys? Because they are already serving like deacons. You put a title on someone, it doesn't make them a servant. So they're already, that's what the the people must have looked around and said, all right, we've got fullness of spirit, we've got good reputation, and we have wisdom. Well, immediately, there's... um, you're already thinking in terms of the servant-hearted one and, oh, that must be, well, what about Stephen? Of course. Oh, yeah, of course, Stephen. Yes, absolutely. What about Philip? So 
what I'm interested in is what must be going on in the heart of an individual who would care about service, serving other people. Serving, now we're, I just, I don't mean to be cruel here, but were all these just lovely widows? Were all these just beautifully, uh, you know what I'm saying, their, their personalities were delightful and they were just so gracious and, I'm being facetious. You're dealing with people. I'm sure one of them responded, oh, you think I'm poor? What's this about? I'm sure some of them were offended at the idea that they had, I'm just, I'm just working this out here. This is difficult ministry because it's ministry. Did you ever hear Paul Tripp? He's a PCA guy, and he's coming to the island in October, and we've had him here before. He did a marriage seminar for us, Paul Tripp. He was teaching a seminary in Westminster in Philadelphia, and he's teaching a counseling class to seminarians. They're going to be pastors. And Paul's going on reflecting on his counseling ministry about the difficulties of people, about the hardships, the brokenheartedness out there, the, the difficulties, the, the people who are struggling, the sin issues, the, the, hard, the hard things that are happening in people's lives. And one guy in the back of the room says, what can we do to sort of farm these people out so we can get on with the ministry? And uh, Paul said, actually, this is the ministry. <laughs> so good reputation is credibility, full of the Spirit. What's that? Full of the Spirit. And, then, and I would suggest to you that one who was full of the Spirit is radically humbled by the gospel. They get mercy. They get it. They are stunned that they are being asked to serve in the body of Christ. They consider it a privilege, of course. They are amazed that they are even invited to the party. They understand what mercy is. And mercy, just the, the short look at it, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Does that make sense? Does anybody kind of sense a little distinction there? Mercy flows from the heart of God. God desires to withhold what we should normally get. It's in his heart. It's beautiful. I am convinced that a person who is filled with the Spirit is saying, you mean I have access to God through Jesus? I'm empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit's available to me. I can move with new power. I can change the, the disordered loves of my heart can be healed and directed in a different direction and that this happens through being filled with the Spirit. You know, even in sermon preparation, it's funny how you resist the, and this sounds kind of mystical, and I don't know, you just, you sort of resist the idea that, well, uh, like to just pray, well, Lord, lead me. Well, why should I lead you? I have seven commentaries on the book of Acts. I don't even need the Holy Spirit. 
and being facetious. The point is, is that preaching's not it. Is preaching an intellectual exercise? Is it, is it really content? Is it really, is it, what is it? It's the communication of, of a heart that is convinced of the beauty and wonder of God. It's not about reading a book and then, and then regurgitating that information and then we all close in prayer and we go home. Isn't that interesting? An informational exchange. You can do that. You can do that on your own. What is it that the preacher must do that is most important for the congregation? The preacher must pray and the preacher must express dependency on the Spirit of God. These who were qualified as deacons were understood as those who simply lived dependent upon God in a more consistent way than the rest of the gang. That's, a, that's all. They, they certainly struggled. But I do want you to know this. Filled with the Spirit is an interesting study in the book of Acts. Because you might think it is, well, it's all this kind of crazy stuff, and it's all, you just can't understand it, and the Spirit sort of leads you in this world of ecstasy. Not in the book of Acts. Filling with the Spirit has a lot to do with standing up in front of people who are going to kill you. Filling with the Spirit has a lot to do with moving into uncomfortable, unknown, new cultures. And by the way, one of these deacons, he's not going to be content with just distributing money within the church. Do you know where his heart is? Philip is out, out in some desert near Gaza, and he is thinking and watching and available who can I share Jesus with? And out of nowhere comes an Ethiopian, Ethiopian official in a chariot who happens to be reading the book of Isaiah. Talk about your day off. Happens to be reading the, day, the book of Isaiah. And then he says, now is, is the suffering servant here, the suffering lamb, is, 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 is Isaiah talking about himself or someone else? Bingo. That's Philip, a deacon. By the way, the deacon is an honorable office in the church. It is not a training ground for real ministry like what the elders do. No. The deacon is an honorable office in the church. And the history, interesting, of the deacon, very, very prominent church leaders were deacons. And it wouldn't uh, be a demotion for an elder having served a while saying, you know, I really feel called to be a deacon. That wouldn't be, uh, that wouldn't be some demotion at all. So what is, the next area is what is wisdom? That's the other qualification, right? Wisdom. Paul Tripp has an interesting uh, thought about that subject, where does wisdom come from? And I would suggest to you that what, what Paul Tripp is saying is he is saying that, let me find it here, 
is that wisdom is the fruit of worship and received on bended knee. It is the product of a life lived in submission to the one who is wisdom, Christ. So the core, I would say, agreeing with Paul Tripp, is that really these were men who understood worship, the privilege of it, and understood at its core, worship is the realigning of one's loves. You are practicing, by worship, you are practicing putting on Christ, like a garment. This is the imagery of Colossians. You are practicing. You stand up, sit down, you sing, you confess, you listen to the sermon, you respond to the sermon, right? Take the Lord's Supper. What are, these are all practices, aren't they? These are all, you're going to step up here, walk up here and take the Lord's Supper, and you go back to your chair. This is a practice, isn't it? These things are the shaping influences, the habits that form who you are. The terrorist has habits of the heart. And they start in the mind or wherever they start, and they rehearse. It's, it's rehearsed. It's thought about. And it's twisted and evil and inhumane but it is practiced. I've always thought of this, and I'm running out of time, but I've thought about this. And let, me, let me illustrate this idea of practice, because I believe that these deacons were worshipers who practiced what it looks like to be submissive to, to God's will. Right? They practiced it. Here's my thought. Let me drive this home if I haven't made it clear. Uh, we have a Christian school, and uh, up through third grades here, and then uh, fourth through twelfth is down the street at, at, at the Methodist Church. Here's my thought as a thought experiment. All right, let's say we have, let's, let's take a seventh through twelfth grade. Okay, We have a school for four hours. Four hours, eight to twelve, and then buses show up. And the buses, they're coming every day. And the buses take the kids to the mall. And you get four hours at the mall. Right? And then and that's on Monday. And then Tuesday comes around. You get four hours of instruction. And then the buses come at noon. And you get four hours at the mall. Everybody tracking? Okay. We're forming what? Habits. Forming habits. Now. Someone give me a verbal response here. What, what habit is going to be more powerful? What's going to shape the heart? What do you think? What do you think, Mary Maris? Consumerism? Uh, which direction might the heart go? To the hard, the hard one or the easy one? Uh, calculus? Or... The gap. <laughs> everybody, everybody tracking? Make sense? So going with your nature is the easy one. Okay. 
What is it to be a servant? How is the heart, how is the heart warmed to service? It becomes serving becomes second nature. You ever been in a restaurant where the waiter doesn't understand that? They don't understand serving you? They don't, they don't get it. I mean, they, they kind of miss, you know what I'm saying? They didn't get the menu right. They didn't get the order right. It's just, you know, it's Tetris. You know, they, 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 miss, they miss the order, you know what I'm saying? At every step, they don't have waitering as a second nature. And you've been around waiters or waitresses who have that, right? Interesting. Now, here's my last thought. The image of a widow in the Bible is one who has, biblically speaking, has to depend on, on other people. Now our day, and age may be, our day and age may be different. A widow is dependent. A widow is sorrowing. Her husband is not there. This is tenuous. This is scary. And others, others can be secure because they have their husband, they have financial prosperity, and their, their way of life is much, uh, they don't have the worries and anxieties that a widow would have. That imagery, that imagery of I have lost my husband, I am weeping, I am in sorrow, that imagery shows up in Revelation 21. Do you know that that passage that we love to quote, and rightly so, where God will wipe away every tear? Do you know that is in the context? The tear is the tear of a widow. And the widow is the church. And her husband died. And what is the good news of Revelation 21? Oh no. The death of the husband is not the final story. He's alive. In Revelation 21, Rome. Rome is the arrogant, non-widowed city that has it all together. right? But in the end, in the end of the age, all the institutions, all the re religious boastings, all the caliphates, all the revolutions, all the political whatevers, every single institution, every single boasting of man will be reversed. And the end of the age, there will be weeping and sorrow for those institutions, but for the church, there's a groom, a husband who comes back from the dead for his bride. Now what he offers us today is this, he offers us the ability to 
see him glorified and coming back. Now, if you tell a widow that, oh, no, your husband is not dead, and he's coming back. Wow, that changes everything. What do we have here? We have the signs that our husband is coming back. We drink the wine. The wine is an eschatological wine. When you have wine for a meal, you're saying, you don't have wine with, with a burger at McDonald's. You have wine when? When it's a special occasion. When it's a, it's a nice meal, right? It's a celebratory meal. The wine is to make you joyful for your husband is coming back. And it might just spark a little bit of joy in your heart. Well, wait until he does come back. And so deacons are the distributors of the mercy of God. They are our servants in our midst, and uh, I pray that, uh, that God will raise us all up to be deacons, to serve the needs of the body, all of us, all of us to function like deacons. Obviously, we need deacons, literally. But my concern is ultimately that we would embrace the, the feel, the, the loves of a deacon, how a deacon has formed habits of love. And they want to distribute a moment of happiness and relief until the final moment comes. See, that's great. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the imagery that tells us you're coming back, that you're with us, that our sorrow will turn to joy. Father, we live in an age when there are institutions and